Hey, it's me, Lars Larson. Thanks for checking out my podcast, and be sure to tell a friend about The Lars Larson Show. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. Welcome back to Lars Larson Show and happy Tuesday to the Pacific Northwest. We at least attempt to serve the region with honestly provocative talk on the Radio Northwest Network. Now, in a moment, I want to say something about the teachers unions that are actively right now fighting to keep your kids in schools that are not protected by the police. Now, if that seems like an outrageous thing to say. I'm going to actually cite the example of the Bellevue Education Association representing teachers in a very affluent suburb in the Pacific Northwest. And they actually say, we don't want cops on campus, but we want to somehow keep the kids safe in schools, even though we don't want police to be there to keep them safe. Now, if that makes no sense to you, it also makes no sense to me either. But let me get into that in just a moment. I want to say that In about 20 minutes, I'm going to talk to the mayor of Portland. Now, just for a piece of historical context, the mayor of Portland was put in his office about six years ago. He has taken the city steadily downhill, much like the mayors of Seattle have degraded that city all the way to Bruce Harrell, who I think sounded good at the beginning, or at least sounded better than Jenny Durkin. But, uh, But no, Mayor Ted Wheeler put in place in 2016 in the election took office in 2017, and what has happened since then? Disaster. Riots, arson, looting, protests, the literal siege of the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Building for a month, which he not only tolerated, he actually endorsed it. He endorsed what he called the free speech of Antifa rioters who set fire to parts of his city, who did arson and looting and assaults, and even one murder. And I'm going to talk to Ted Wheeler. The last time Ted Wheeler was on this program was May of 2018. And at that time, and in fact, in the year or so before then, he had committed that at least once a year. I said, Mayor, will you come on at least once a year and take a few tough questions? He said, oh, I'll come on more often than that. Well, I actually had an exchange of emails with the mayor last week because he was calling me out saying, why don't you do your due diligence and call my office? I said, Mayor, we call your office almost once a week and we get no response at all. Not even the courtesy of a professional returned phone call. Well, the mayor said, "Okay, well, I'll come on. And I said, I'll give you as much time as you need. He offered us half an hour. His staff cut that in half. But we will at least get a few minutes to talk to Mayor Ted Wheeler a little bit later on this hour. And I'll invite your phone calls as well. 
If you want to take part in the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you're a naysayer, as we've promised for more than 25 years, if you disagree with my point of view, or what I've had to say about a given subject. I'm glad to take your call, and we'll put you right to the front of the line. You just have to come prepared with a good argument, maybe a few facts and a little logic to back it up, and then agree to stick around for a few phone, a uh, few questions from me, uh, just like I'm going to ask questions of Ted Wheeler later on this hour. Now, we're going to pack a lot into that nine minutes, but, hey, the, I, I'm going to take what we can get. We've always said that we will take every Democrat, Everybody who disagrees with the things you hear me say on this show every day, we're happy to put them on. Very few Democrats, very few liberals or progressives have the guts to come on. We've asked for Bruce Harrell. We asked for Jenny Durkin. Uh, We've asked for Governor Inslee. We've asked for Kate Brown. Uh, All have refused. Said uh, In many cases, they don't even, as I said, uh, give you the professional courtesy of a phone call back to say, no, we're not going to do it. They just ghost you. But if that gives you an idea, I've found that most of the time, if somebody is afraid to ask hard uh, to answer hard questions about the position they have taken, it's usually because they know that they are trying to defend the indefensible. Now, speaking of that, let me get to the Bellevue Education Association. The BEA is the union that represents the teachers. Sounds a little fancier when you say Bellevue Education Association, and it is a fancy affluent suburb of Seattle, so why not sound a little bit fancy? But at the bottom line, it's a union. Now, the discussion has been in school districts all over the Northwest, how do we keep the kids safe? And so far, the prescription has been Uh, We'll take all the police out of the schools. We'll stop enforcing all the rules in the schools. When a kid gets out of line, we will no longer suspend them. We will no longer expel them because we find that when we do, this is the schools speaking in this case, we find that when we kick kids out, we kick out a disproportionate number of black and Hispanic kids. We kick out fewer by percentage of white kids, and the Asian kids practically don't get kicked out at all. Now, you say, well, then there's a difference between those groups. And you say, yes, but the Wokies who run the schools of the Northwest will not acknowledge that difference. They will not say, well, if we have to kick kids out, as long as we are enforcing those rules in a colorblind manner, there's nothing wrong with it. No, they've decided they want to be anti-racist. And I'm telling you, it is putting your kids at risk. Well, there was a deadly school shooting at a Seattle high school just a little bit earlier this month. And you say, well, the clear answer is bring back law enforcement. Put a police officer in that school. And yet, what do you hear from the head of the BEA, Jill Rock? And by the way, we'll reach out to Ms. Rock and ask her to come on the program. She says, there's definitely a history with students of color feeling a certain way with the presence of officers in the school. Really? Has she gone out and uh, interviewed or polled these students of color? To say, you really don't like the cops, do you? If you're black or Hispanic, you you can't possibly like the cops. Actually, most of the victims of the violent criminals in this country, white, black, or any other color, most of their victims are people of color. They are disproportionately among the victim groups. They get robbed. They get raped. They get assaulted. They get hurt badly. So the Bellevue Teachers Union has now passed a resolution 
against bringing cops back on campus. In that resolution, the teachers say, with respect to students of color, they want to prioritize placement of counselors, not cops, in K-12 through schools. Now, if you're a parent of one of those students, in this case, I'm talking about the Bellevue schools, but I can't find a district in the Pacific Northwest that doesn't follow this same party line. The party line put out by the mostly Democrat-leaning unions that represent the teachers, saying, we don't want cops on campus. There likely are some smaller districts that still have cops on campus, but they told Como News they want the money. Instead of using it to pay for a cop who would actually arrest students who break the law, they want to get more mental and behavioral health professionals in the schools. So I'm going to ask you, do you think that spending the, the money, instead of spending it on police officers who would actually identify people who've committed crimes on your K-12 through school campuses, in some cases against your sons and daughters or grandsons and granddaughters, instead of doing that, they want to hire more counselors. Tell me if you think that leaves your kids safer, not as safe, or about the same. You know where I stand on this. If there are crimes committed on a campus, that campus is every bit as much a part of Seattle or Portland or Eugene or Spokane or any other place in the Northwest. If a crime's committed on campus, the criminal should be charged. The criminal should be prosecuted. And I don't care if that criminal is 15 or 18. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Northwest nonsense is coming up next. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of nonsense. Right. You're bloody well right. You know you got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. Hey, I've got to ask you this question. Is anybody else sick of the excuses from Multnomah County DA Mike Schmidt? Now, he's not the only offending prosecutor in the Northwest, but he is one of the worst. What can you say about a guy who runs for office to be the prosecutor in one of the most populous counties in the Northwest and then decides He'd rather sit in the DA's office and let criminals go free. Schmidt's latest lie to the public, that lack of public defenders is holding him back. Now that is pure BS as far as I'm concerned. The DA of Multnomah County prosecutes less than half of the theft two and three cases, misdemeanors, while neighboring Washington and Clackamas counties prosecute 84% and 93% respectively. Same state, same public defenders, but as usual, Schmidt doesn't want to prosecute criminals. He has been actively pro-criminal, especially Antifa criminals who happen to share Mike Schmidt's politics since the get-go. So why make a change now? Those who walk free include car thieves, those engaged in domestic violence, drunk driving, and even hit and run. So in some cases, the kinds of offenses that often lead to somebody, an innocent victim, ending up dead. Does it make sense why we have a 450% increase in liquor theft, 270% increase in expensive catalytic converter theft, open drug markets right out in the open, and neighborhood shootouts among the drug-dealing gangbangers? Now, I'm going to get my first interview with Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler in about 10 minutes or so. So I'm going to ask him why he doesn't call out this malfeasance by Mike Schmidt. Spare a thought and say a prayer for one police officer, in particular, Officer Jordan Jackson. He's from Bellevue. He was out doing his job early yesterday morning. 
He was on a motorcycle, and uh, but he was doing his job. That's his job. Worked as part of the Bellevue Police Department for five years. Got employee of the quarter. Worked as an EMT, a volunteer firefighter, member of the King County Sheriff's Search and Rescue Volunteer Unit, K-9 unit, before becoming a cop at Bellevue Police about four years ago. He died in a collision early yesterday morning. Please spare a thought for Officer Jordan and Jackson, Officer Jackson, and for his family and his friends. Uh, My question of the day comes in from Brenda, who says, Lars, I live in Grants Pass, Oregon. A couple of our gas stations are almost out of fuel. One station's down to 600 gallons. Not sure when they'll have more. By the way, I love your show. I wrote back. I said, thanks for that, and thanks for the info. Did the stations explain? Well, uh, she wrote back. And she said, listen, I called the Shell. They're down to 500 gallons. The gentleman I talked to said he heard the supplier in Eugene is out. They've ordered the diesel, and the last three shipments that have come have not been diesel, just gasoline. If you want to check into it, I can. She gives me a number. Kind of scary. I have four diesel rigs and do long haul for a living. I'm actually headed back to Georgia on Friday. Love the show. Have a great Thanksgiving, and the same to you and yours. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. The way has been paved by trademark paving. Just pave it. Serving Southwest Washington. I'm going to get today's Daily Grill in advance. I know a lot of you are going to be traveling tomorrow and on Thursday and over the weekend to Joe Biden's gas prices. As the AAA points out today, drivers fueling up ahead of Thanksgiving will find slightly smaller prices in all 50 states. However, gas prices will be the most expensive ever for the Thanksgiving holiday in America. It's never been this high. For the week, the national average for regular uh, dropped to three sixty-four a gallon. That's about $1.30 or about 50% above the price when Joe Biden took the oath of office. The Oregon average dropped to $4.60 a gallon. That is the fifth largest weekly drop for a state in the nation. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Northwest. Currently hiring, and they're paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators, TheMEIGroup.com. Got this email, said, Lars, concerning Paul Ryan saying the Republicans lose with Trump, I seem to remember in 2012, Ryan ran with another loser named Romney and got beat by Obama long before the mail-in ballots got started. It took Trump to show that McCain and Romney how to win. Rarely, really, it doesn't matter who runs on the Republican ticket unless they fix the fraud in mail ballots. I also remember when the Republicans controlled both sides of Congress, Ryan and McConnell fought Trump at every term. Also, regarding the law saying you have to have vaccines, to trade do you think they're going to stop the influx at our borders ha ha keep up the good work lars i listen every single day arlen perry now to your calls and i love starting off a tuesday with a great naysayer eric welcome to the program thanks for calling in i hope you're a great naysayer are you uh, eric yes i'm here okay what do we disagree about today eric My, my point is, is um, you know, the schools could still call the police to, you know, arrest a child that was being unruly. I just don't see how it could be a negative situation to have highly trained psychologists or whatever the schools are planning on doing 
to be there for kids because most of the kids that are acting out are coming from, you know, challenged families, let's call it. You know what, Eric? I, I want to make it clear. I don't want kids arrested by the police for being unruly. Being unruly is not a violation of the law. I was very clear when I said I want kids arrested for committing crimes. And the reason the schools have given for why they don't want the cops there, and they've said this out loud, uh, right in front of God and everybody, they've said we don't want the cops there because when some of our students commit crimes like assault or drug dealing or carrying a weapon illegally, why they would get arrested because that's a crime. Now, the schools that have said, we don't want the kids to be arrested, therefore we don't want the cops on campus, do you think that school is very likely to call the police if they see a kid committing a crime? Well, I think it's a complicated issue. I mean, I'm a, you know, in my mid-50s there, and, you know, I came from a challenged family, and I acted out a lot. Did you ever and, commit crimes you know, at sometimes school? Sometimes kids. Did you, did no, you no, ever commit I, crimes I at say, school? Well, yeah, there was some fighting involved, and, and you know, I wasn't stealing or bringing guns to school. But I, I think the issue is more of a psychological issue versus punishment. Because, mo- I mean, I don't know what the percentages are, but you could probably look this up. You Eric, know, I think that Eric, most hold on. Of your if, kids, if a kid assaults another kid, is that a crime? Of course it's a crime. Okay, now, now here's, I'll make this real easy. You it say depends. this is complicated. It ain't complicated, Eric. If a kid commits a crime anywhere else but the school, should he be arrested and charged with that crime? Yes, I believe okay, that. Okay, and if be, he commits know, the crime at a cause, school, but... if he commits the crime at the school, should he be exempt from the laws that make that a crime everywhere else? Right. So, I mean, I can't be I can't be speaking to the, you know, the staff at the schools, whether they're going to choose to call or not. But they're not going to. They've already said they don't want the cops on campus because the cops arrest people. Coming up, I'm going to talk for the first time in about four and a half years with the mayor of Portlandia, Ted Wheeler. And we got some hard questions for him. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I always want to make great use of my time, especially when I have not talked to somebody in four and a half years. Uh, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler joins me now. Time is short, and your staff cut it in half yesterday, so I want to get as many questions in as I can. Mr. Mayor, welcome back to the program. Thank you, sir. State of the city, the, the year you took over, 2017, after election in 2016, and the state of the city today, how would you compare the two? Definitely more challenged today. Not in as good a shape as it was when you took over, right? Uh, on on issues that matter to the community, whether it's public safety, homelessness, livability, no. Conditions okay. have, have definitely deteriorated since that time. How much responsibility do you take for the state the city finds itself in today? All of it. I see myself holding myself accountable by doing better, by making sure that we're making the kinds of investments and actions we need to address homelessness, to address the violence in our city, particularly gun violence, to make sure that we address livability issues, litter, graffiti, and other types of issues in the public right-of-way. I take it all very seriously. If, if you're making the right decisions now, do you believe you're making the right decisions now? I do. 
then why is it we're headed for another record murder rate this year after a record last year that broke all the other records and a record rate of the number of shootings if you're making the right decision? Well, here's where we will agree, that public safety is the primary function of municipal government. People have a right to feel and be safe in the community. And that means at the municipal level, the police need the tools, the resources, the training, and yes, the personnel that they need to be successful. And I want you and your listeners to know that this is actually the first time in many years where we've had more police officers coming in to the police organization than retiring or leaving. We just had our largest recruiting class in some time, and we've hired 117 police personnel a year to date so far, which is the, the most we've had in many, many years. So I'm, I'm seeing on the resourcing side things going well. Uh, on the gun violence side, we now have our focused intervention team on the streets. They're the ones who intervene and prevent gun violence. We stood up the enhanced community safety team, which makes sure that every incident of gun violence in our community gets the attention that it deserves and that we hold people accountable. And an area that really doesn't get much attention, but that I think is really fantastic, is the improved relationships we have with our federal partners, the FBI and others who've worked very, very closely with the police bureau on gun violence and other types of issues to hold people accountable. And I'm, I'm starting to see positive results in those, those investments. Mr. Mayor, let me ask you about the DA. The DA is now prosecuting a record low number of all kinds of crimes, not just misdemeanors, but felonies as well. He, he opposes prosecuting many, many people who've engaged in violence. Are you, is it time for you to stand up and call out Mike Schmidt and say, our cops can't do the job if you won't do your job. And if, you, if it's not time, tell me why it's not time for the mayor of the city to call out the DA who is now prosecuting a record low number of crimes in a city that is beset with crime. I held a press conference, Lars, about a year ago where I made a statement that I was resoundingly criticized for. What I said was the entire criminal justice system from the bottom to the top was in disarray and that we needed to look not only at my role in this around policing and accountability at the local level, but we have officers who arrest the same people over and over and over again. They take them to the jail and they're told at the jail, which the city has nothing to do with, that there's no room at the jail, so they're released. If they're kept at the jail, what we have is uh, problems where either the prosecutor doesn't feel he has the evidence to be able to prosecute. Uh, Mike came out yesterday, Mike Schmidt, the district attorney, came out yesterday and said that he had to basically um, dismiss the cases of 300 people, including people accused of, of very serious felonies because of a lack of uh, public defenders. And then we have judges that, that sometimes make decisions that hold us back at the local level, too. And just one example of many is when a judge decided that anybody during a protest who has a crayon press badge attached to them with a staple or tape has to be left alone because they're presumed to be a member of the press. So, you know, all of these things come into play, and, and I, I believe I've been very outspoken in terms of the need to prosecute people that we arrest 
who who should be prosecuted and held accountable. One of the most infuriating things for me and for the police, and I assume the community at large, is when somebody's accused of a relatively minor crime, let's say breaking a window, uh, okay, fine, maybe jail's not the right thing, but if they break a window 15 times in a row and they're never held accountable, it's assumed that they're starting from ground zero, that's not acceptable. There has to be some sense of cumulative damage and cumulative impact on the community. So you would endorse three strikes, let's say? I, I don't know specifically what you're referring to. You don't, you're not familiar with three strikes. Okay, I thought Harvard and Stanford might have covered that. Let me, call, let me call you out on this. You should know the issues, right? You take the BS from Mike Schmidt, who says we're overwhelmed and there aren't enough public defenders. Mr. Mayor, this isn't hard data to find. I found it. The number of cases taken on by the public defenders has dropped 43% in the last 20 years. The uh, resource, The there, resources... Yeah, the resources for public defense have gone up 54% in the last decade. Their workload is down dramatically. Their numbers, their resources have gone up an average of 5% a year for the last decade. And you accept Mike Schmidt saying, I can't prosecute because I'm short of, t- of material and time and people? No, I, I don't accept any part of the criminal justice system throwing their hands in the air and saying we don't have enough people. If you don't have enough people, then go out and recruit them, hire them. If you can't recruit them and hire them, then do something different. And that's what we've been doing for years here in the Portland Police Bureau. We put the the uh, Portland Public Safety Support Specialist program in place for non-sworn law enforcement personnel. That's been successful. We invested in non policing interventions like the Portland Street Response and other programs to take some of the pressure off of our police officers so they can focus on higher acuity crimes. We've even looked at technology improvements that could help. We've, we've got the shot spotter that we're taking a look at for gun violence, uh, and uh, we're, we're revamping our 911 call system to improve the call times that, that uh, citizens expect. When You've they done all that, Mr. Mayor, but you won't call out the DA when he shovels out that kind of BS that he's I'm not, overworked I'm not and can't sure do the refer- when, you, when you say calling out the DA, I, I mean, I use the bully DA. pulpit. Use, stand up and say, I'm I the do. mayor of Portland. My police agency will arrest a lot of criminals. The DA refuses. This isn't disarray. It's not disorganization. It is Mike Schmidt saying, I'm going to make a concerted effort not to prosecute people, and especially people that he feels are in his political lane, Antifa and and that bunch that he says, I'm going to dismiss or decline to prosecute. He's actually very organized in his efforts not to prosecute. That's what I mean. And you standing up and using the bully pulpit, if you started calling the fish wrapper every day or every month and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a statement against Mike Schmidt, and he's not doing his job, and, his, and not doing his job is putting people at risk, I'm going to call him out on that. You want you don't want to do that. You want this all to no, be Marquis of no, Queensberry's uh, uh, rules. Look, just call, calling people out isn't really my style. What I'm doing is I'm looking at the criminal justice system, and I'm trying to figure out what's broken and what needs to be fixed. There's no question in my mind that we need more prosecutorial capacity in the district attorney's office. There's no question in my mind that we need more public defenders so that we don't have cases summarily dismissed. Will you stick around for a second segment, Mr. Mayor? I know you've got to travel at one. Will you stick around? I'm, I'm just warming up, Lars. Okay, well, let's do another segment. Mayor Ted Wheeler is with me. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler is with me, and he agreed to come on after a four-and-a-half-year absence. You'd probably forgotten how much fun this is, hadn't you? Not, not at all, Lars. Not Have at a all. good memory. Well, we, we want you to come on on a regular basis and take these questions. Anything more you want to say about policing? One last question specifically to that. Were you then wrong to vote for defunding the police a couple of years ago? No, the community had asked for it, but I want to correct the record on something. All right. um, the last year, actually, the police budget increased fairly markedly to reflect our desire to have more police officers. And as I mentioned, that, that program is looking pretty successful. We also replaced the GVRT, the Gun Violence Reduction Team, a year, a year and a half ago with the Focused Intervention Team and the Enhanced Community Safety Team. I want the community to know that those programs are showing very solid results. We're very happy with that. Um, but when it comes to the budget cuts, we have actually now allocated more than was lost during those budget cuts. And I want people to know that we didn't actually cut services. What we cut were un filled vacancies. In other words, positions that have been approved in the budget, but which were never filled. And so there was not actually a reduction in police capacity on the streets. Okay. When you say fit, the focus intervention team has been successful. How many prosecutions of people who've committed crimes that put people in danger have you had out of fit in the last, since it started operating? Yeah. And I'm sorry, I don't have that data off the top of my head, but I, I know it's been substantial. Okay, let I, me I ask you this. The thing, that in, the thing that inspired you to write to me for the first time in four and a half years was I called you out and said it was cowardice that when people showed up at city council and they wanted to give you it in, in both ears, loud and long, about issues they disagree with, you locked it down, shut the public out, and went to a virtual meeting. And I said that's not only cowardly, I think it violates Oregon's public meetings law. You defended almost a year of nightly riots that included arson, looting, and even one murder, and a lot of people off to the hospital, and yet you kicked city citizens out of the city council chambers for getting too loud and insistent. Can you explain, can you, you know, make me see how that's not a double standard? Uh, well, first of all, I, I've got to unpack some of this. I, I completely, 100% refute your claim that I supported the criminal destruction and violence that was taking place in the city of Portland. And I think if you went back and looked at the record, looked at the press conferences, looked at the actions of this administration, you would find that we absolutely did not support that. On the other hand, what you would find is a lot of criticism leveled at me for calling out people who were engaged in those activities because people thought they were, quote, demonstrating, unquote. I don't believe that criminal destruction or violence is demonstrating. Now, it's a, it's a crime, and people should be held accountable for it, and they are being. Uh, now, with regard to the city council meeting, you mischaracterized what actually happened. What happened was a woman came to the microphone. She spoke beyond the time she was allotted, and I'm generally pretty flexible about that. Uh, but then she refused to leave the microphone. And we have meeting rules, one of which is you can't just occupy the microphone and tell everybody else who signed up to testify that they don't get to testify. We mm -hmm. warned her that she would be removed if she continued. She continued. She was removed. Then when we came back into the council chambers after she was removed, I once again reiterated the rules and I made it clear 
that if people do that again, we would switch to a virtual meeting. It happened. We switched to a virtual meeting, but everybody who wanted to testify was still able to go to the room next door, and they were able to testify via Zoom. So we didn't lock anybody out. We didn't prevent anybody from having their say. But as the presiding officer of the council, it's my job to maintain order and decorum in that chamber. And that's what I did. You've got rules that say you can't stand there if they if you're told to leave, just like you have laws in the city that say you cannot block public streets. You cannot occupy streets for hours at a time and throw explosives at the police and all that. And yet you didn't enforce those rules, did you? That's just not true. When you know, I don't call the tactics of the Portland Police Bureau. I, I assume we're going You're the back police to commissioner. 2020. Correct. But I, I don't call the tactics any more than the commander in chief of the United States calls battlefield tactics for the U.S. military. I trust my leadership. And there were different circumstances on different nights. In some cases, direct and quick police intervention was the right call. In other cases, letting the energy filter out of the crowd or keeping people bracketed was the right call. And some nights they were successful, some nights they weren't successful. But I always supported them, and I never intervened and told them what to do or how to do it. Now, let me ask you a last thing, and we're short to time, but I appreciate the extra segment. You've announced a new homeless plan. To me, I've read through the whole thing. It sounds like the same thing you've been doing for the last decade, only bigger and more expensive persuade me it'll make any more difference than the last decade has made when the city and the county have spent well over a billion dollars on the problem and it's only gotten worse fair question so what i'm hearing overwhelmingly from my community is they want to get people off the streets as quickly as possible and keep them off they want a compassionate response that addresses their needs but they also have expectations about the maintenance of the public right-of-way and an expectation of safety in the community. So the five resolutions we just passed acknowledge three truths. The first is that the waiting list for housing is five to seven years for somebody on the streets. While they're on the streets, they are exposed to frequent and very inexpensive new drugs like fentanyl and P2P meth, And homeless people themselves say they are not connected in any meaningful way to services, mental health. I'm looking forward to our next talk, Mayor Mayor Wheeler. Thank you. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's the Radio Northwest Network proudly serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk. Now, I figure, and I I would hope that you would agree with me, that my job is to call out BS 
when I see it coming out of the mouths of public officials, especially when those public officials are not uh, somebody at the Department of Transportation or something like that. These are the people who decide whether or not criminals end up being prosecuted and eventually convicted and then sent to prison. And when they say, I can't do my job because there aren't enough defense attorneys. And so I'm just going to deliberately not charge people. I thought that deserves to be called out. In this case, I'm talking about the uh, district attorney of Multnomah County, one of the most populous counties in the Northwest, second only to King County. And the DA, Mike Schmidt, has said, well, we, we can't charge as many people with crimes. I think this is hogwash, and I think the numbers show it. And my friend, the former DA, Josh Marquis, joins me now. Josh, I want I want my audience to hear your take on Mike Schmidt's excuses. He has not wanted to prosecute criminals all the way back uh, to to when he took over in in August of 2020, and he has declined to prosecute over a thousand criminal cases. And now apparently he's saying, I don't want to prosecute misdemeanors. I don't want to prosecute as many felonies. And he's trying to use the excuse that there aren't enough defense attorneys to fulfill the promise made when you read your Miranda rights, right? Well, he'll use any number of excuses. The most recent, as you point out, is there's the uh, every four or five years, the indigent defense group, which is, is paid um, close to a third of a billion dollars every biennium, uh, which is, as I think you noted in your interview with Mayor Wheeler, is an increase in 10 years of 52 percent in, in budget by the state. Um, he's used that as an excuse for why Multnomah County is only prosecuting roughly 42 percent of all the misdemeanors sent to it. And then when we if we want a comparison, all we need to do is look at the either of the two metro counties on either side run by real DAs in Clackamas and Washington County. Washington County prosecutes about 93 percent of misdemeanors and Washington County prosecutes 83 um, so basically, there is no just uh, indigent defense is paid for by the state. So there shouldn't be massive differences between Portland and Hillsborough and Oregon City. So the only thing that's different, the only reason why, basically, as uh, Kyle Aboshi did a superb piece on this on KGW, yeah, talking about how businessmen are saying things like that uh, professional shoplifters come in to steal thousands of dollars and go, you can't do a thing, but you can't even call the cops. They won't even show up. Um, no, and, and, course, and here's the, the thing, Josh. Josh, do you, do you blame the police agencies who've dropped the number of arrests they're making when they understand that even if we arrest all these people, if we forward the case to the DA, the DA will just take it and use it as waste paper, throw it right in the trash, and they won't prosecute them anyway? Or it, would there be a point to police agencies saying, we're going to load your office up with people who've been charged by the police so that you can then throw them away and tell the public that you're going to simply discard 60% of the cases that come to you? I can't blank blame the rank and file officers because, you know, they, we don't even have any, there is no drug, there is no drug enforcement in Portland anymore. There is no traffic enforcement in Portland anymore. So if you're a street officer and you keep sending in uh, vandalism and, and major level, you know, shoplifting cases and they get turned out, I don't blame the street level officers. I wish the higher ranking officers would put the wood to the DA's office. As someone who did this for close to 40 years, 25 as the DA, there is a natural tension between cops who want to see cases done and prosecutors who tend to say, ah, it's not quite there yet. 
This goes way beyond that. That's why comparing them to the other metro counties shows that things are, this is really unheard of. I mean, there's no place well, in Oregon that has ever been like this. I, I want to I I share some of the numbers. You got some of them for me. I got some from another former DA, chief criminal DA, and I got some on my own. But if people say, but there, there are not enough public defenders and the Constitution has a promise that you have to be given counsel if you're charged with a crime. The public defenders are seeing the lowest number of charged cases in two decades. It went from 20 years ago, 104,266 cases. That was 2001. By 2017, the number was down to 80 grand, so it wasn't the pandemic. Then last year, 59,000 cases, a reduction of 43% over 20 years. So their workload is down 43%. Their funding from uh, for 2012 through 2022, a decade, went from $220 million to $339 million, a third of a billion dollars, a 54% increase in the last decade. So their money to do the job is up 54%. The job they're doing is down 43%. There can't be any legitimate excuse for not getting enough defense attorneys uh, to satisfy the Constitution needs, is there? I don't think so. And now, now when we're spending, and let's also be clear, Oregon is not like in the bottom quarter in the United States. Oregon is in the top 10 states in terms of what we provide for. For example, in most of America, in the federal system, if you're facing, say, a 30-day jail sentence, you're not entitled to a court-appointed lawyer. Oregon, and I'm not saying I disagree with this, if you, if there's a, any chance that you could do one minute in jail, you're entitled to a court-appointed attorney and anything that that court-appointed attorney thinks they need, whether that means investigators, uh, specialists, uh, you and I have talked before, um, although this doesn't happen much in misdemeanor cases, it is a bottomless checkbook um, when a defense attorney says, I want to hire a psychiatrist. I want to fly in witnesses from Mexico. I want to fly in pen pals from England. I'm not making any of this up. I've experienced all of those in cases. Now, most of those are not misdemeanors. I'll say that. But it's a bottomless checkbook. I don't fault the defense attorneys for doing that. That's their job. What is completely outrageous is the one person in the system who's supposed to stand up for the people, stand up for the victims, and that is the person elected as the district okay. attorney. Josh, last hour, I suggested to the mayor of Portland, who did his first interview with me in four and a half years, it's your job to stand up and, and call out the DA on this. And he said, oh, no, it's really not. Uh, no. And I don't know what you mean. I said, the bully pulpit. I thought they covered that at Stanford and Harvard when you're a graduate of both. But he doesn't think it's his job. Is it legitimate when a DA has gone this far off the rails for everybody from the governor to the mayor to the county, county council, city council, to call the guy out and say, either start doing your job or we will encourage the public to recall you specifically for not doing your job? Who is it time to bell the cat? Of course it is, because the job of district attorney, as I was told by people who disagreed with me, they would say things like, oh, you have unlimited power. You answer to nobody but the voters and then only four years. They're generally right. So when you have things as bad as they are, is there anyone who lives in Portland, who visits Portland, who can legitimately say, eh, you know, it's really not that bad and then draw a direct line? to the refusal to prosecute people for, for rioting, 
for basically trying to burn down the federal courthouse, from trying to hurt officers, shootings on a on a daily basis, particularly in the black community where they're. Josh, I got a break. And by the way, the murder of Aaron Danielson, among other things. That's Josh Marquis, the former DA. Back in a moment. I'll get to your calls. You got the Lars Larson show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get to some of your phone calls in just a moment, but I want to tell you, I've got to share some things with you because I don't hate electric cars. There are a lot of people who think I hate electric cars. I don't hate them. I think they're impractical right now. I think they're not market ready right now. And that's why the government chooses to put tens of billions of dollars into subsidizing them anytime you have to subsidize something to get people to use it. Again, uh, just think of that kid who's so ugly that to get the family dog to play with him you have to tie a stake around his neck well great britain which is a little bit ahead of us in a bad way in terms of the green revolution uh throwing away uh standard ways of making electric power in favor of windmills and solar panels western europe is a few years ahead of us maybe even as close to a decade ahead of us so if you want a warning about where we're going to go wrong all you have to do is watch great britain uh and i'm going to give you some specific examples of that first welcome back to the lars larson show if you want to join the best conversation and talk journalism it's right here at 866 hey lars that's 866-439-5277 send your emails to talk at larslarson.com and vote in our twitter poll you'll find that at lars larson show and at larslarson.com and welcome back to the radio northwest network proudly serving the pacific northwest states of oregon washington and idaho for the past 22 and a half years uh Craig, I wanted you to get a comment, and you wanted to say something about the interview I did with Mayor uh, Ted Wheeler of Portland. Yeah, Lars, I, I, I manage property. I can't tell you how many hours I've spent on 911 in the last few years without being answered or ever having an officer show up uh, because they were so busy with rioters downtown and peaceful protesters that they couldn't come out and help us while, while my tenants that I'm uh, managing uh, have seen thousands of dollars of damage uh, with nothing being done about it. And then, and then if you do figure out who it is, there's nobody to prosecute them, and nobody cares about the victims of what happened in the last few years, which was devastating to many businesses. And, and- I, I have to agree with you, Craig, and I think that's the flaw. The mayor will pat himself on the back and say, we're doing the right things, except the results don't show it. Craig, thanks for the call. Now, let me make uh, just give you some information, uh, because I think it's worthwhile if you say, am I going to make a mistake in doing something? You say, well, let's take a look at some other people who are doing the same kind of thing I'm thinking about doing. And by thinking about it, I mean uh, governors of states who are now saying we're going to mandate all electric car sales by 2035. That's California. And then there are other states that have said, no, we're going to mandate it by 2030, eight years from now. And they say, we're just going to force people to buy electric vehicles. Let me warn you about something. And this, I'm going to take a look at Great Britain, because a story that was done for the Daily Caller says the high cost of used electric vehicles is holding back the electrification of the car market. There's some brand new research out that shows a lack of charging facilities, short driving range. And on a used car, you're not going to change that. Technology may change it on the newer cars. But on the used cars, you're stuck with the short driving range. And if it's an older battery in the car, you're going to have even more of that. 
And then they said disinterested customers cited by Great Britain or UK motor trade dealers, they're all combining to stifle sales. What they did was they used a car tracker to show that about 58% of dealers are worried about the high expense of electric vehicles compared to gasoline and diesel. One in four dealers, 25% of them, say they are troubled by the lack of community on-site charging facilities, while almost one in five, about 19%, simply say customers aren't ready to accept electric vehicles. Now, I know that for those of you who are enthusiasts about electric vehicles, you say, well, those people, they just don't know what they're doing. Yeah, they do. I mean, most adults who buy a car know exactly what their family needs uh, out of a vehicle. They know the capabilities that it has to have. And yet the electric cars are not coming up to that standard. When asked about what would help them adapt to electrification, 61% of dealers want cheaper electric vehicles. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that with the push for electric vehicles, not just nationwide in America, but worldwide around this planet, as they try to produce more of them, economies of scale might get some of them to get a little bit cheaper. But I've already given you one comparison. If you want a today comparison, Ford, and I've got no dog in the fight, I've owned Fords before, I hold nothing against the company. But Ford Motor Company makes a pickup truck, an F-150, gasoline, if you buy the base model version of that, uh, and you pay about $30,000. If you want to buy the electric version called the Lightning, which is about $18,000 more to buy the electric version of that car or a pickup truck. And they're the same. Both the stripped down model, one of them is $18,000 more than the other one. And if you sit down and take a look at the number of miles you could drive in that gasoline powered vehicle, for the gasoline you could buy, even at today's crazy gasoline prices, um, it really literally comes up to about two times around planet Earth. If, you, if there was a highway that would let you drive around Earth, you could drive about twice around planet Earth on the gasoline you could buy for the price difference between the electric version of a pickup truck and the very same version done in gas. So when they say we want them to be cheaper, you can bet that Ford Motor Company wants to sell a whole bunch of these electric pickup trucks. That's great. They also know that when somebody walks on the lot and says, I'm thinking about it, a Ford F-150, show me the electric one and show me the gasoline one when the price difference is $18,000 or about 55% more expensive. You can imagine that unless somebody has an unlimited checkbook, they're going to say, thanks anyway, I'll come to them when they're cheaper. They also say 38% of the dealers, this is in Great Britain where they're farther down the road in a bad way toward this so-called green revolution. Longer range vehicles would be an advantage according to almost 40%. Almost 30% say a greater choice of electric models is needed. The rising cost of living is also holding that back despite the fact that fuel costs are at one of the highest points they've been in both American history and world history. The average sticker price for an electric vehicle in America in May of this year was up 22% from a year ago, about $54,000. The average price for an internal combustion vehicle 
only went up 14% over the same period of time to an average of 44000 So even if you're not buying the latest greatest, as I said with the Ford F-150, if you want to use that as a benchmark, it's almost $19,000 net difference between the same model, the very same model in either electric or gas. Even for an average electric vehicle versus an average gasoline vehicle, the difference is $10,000. Now, most people are going to look at that. They understand that the cost of owning a car is the capital cost of the car, the cost of maintenance, the cost of fuel, and the cost of insurance. When you tell them it's 10000 more to buy the electric version, again, you better be have a very well-heeled customer if you expect that customer not to care about that. And the immediate demand from the car companies is going to be, if you want us to sell all these electric cars and force people to buy them, then you're going to have to have the taxpayers pay for hundreds of thousands, no exaggeration, hundreds of thousands of electric vehicle charging stations. Why? Because you're going to need about five times as many electric charging stations as you have gas stations right now because the vehicles take about five times as long to fuel. The math is real easy on that one. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, do you know that we may be heading up to a railroad workers strike? And strangely enough, the first thing I thought of was a moment where Barack Hussein Obama, once president of the United States, uh, was uh, talking to an associate, Medvedev, of uh, Vladimir Putin. And, you know, Obama was never accused of being a a stooge for Russia, even though Donald Trump was later. And he told Medvedev, uh, tell uh, Vladimir, I don't think he called him Comrade Vladimir, although he might have if he was speaking from the heart, tell Vladimir I will have more flexibility after the election. I kind of wonder whether Joe Biden might have used that same phrase when he walked into the union negotiations involving about a dozen different worker unions that represent the rail workers of America and said, listen, uh, get yourself together and get a tentative deal. I'll have more flexibility after the election. Uh, I might put that question first to Sean Higgins, who's a research fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Sean, we were told by Joe Biden that his brilliant uh, expertise at negotiating brought about a settlement of any kind of worker action by rail workers before the election. And now that the election is over, we're being told the rail workers may go on strike December 5th. Welcome back to the show and tell me what we should make of that. Yeah, well, basically, what he was what was probably the most important thing to Joe Biden was there not be a strike before the election. And I think that was one of the things he was uh, tr- striving hard to do. I mean, a lot of this was just sort of pushed under the pushed back uh, prior, prior to the election. A lot of this was just sort of pushed back. Um, the idea that anything that was solved was uh, not really accurate. Um, the negotiations were still ongoing. Some of the unions hadn't signed on. And the administration was just sort of trying to create a sense that they had had resolved the issue and get people's attention elsewhere. Um, and now that the election is over, they can sort of get back to this. So, yeah, there's probably a bit of um, uh, now that the election is over, we can sort of get back get back to this. I don't think we're actually going to have a strike. It doesn't look as to me as though it's um, shaping up that way. That's kind of my gut feeling. Um, it's more sort of a hardball negotiation tactics uh, uh, situation. Um, but who knows? I mean, I've been wrong on this type of stuff before. 
Well, Sean, tell me this then. As I understand it, and I've got no dog in the fight, I don't know anybody who's currently a railroad engineer. I don't have any retired railroad engineer friends. But as I understand it, the workers were offered the biggest raise. They've got a five-year package that adds up to, I think, 24 25% over five years. Biggest raise they've had in 40 years. What remains to be decided? What they're arguing over now is is literally just sick days. Um, some of the unions want more sick days. They complain that they've had, uh, they were required to work too many long hours during the COVID crisis um, to keep supplies going. And that they want basically literally more opportunity to simply call in sick, more flexibility to do that. Um, the railroads have balked at doing that. One of the sort of issues kind of under, underpinning this is um, automation. Railroads have been trying to automate more and more, and that obviously needs requires less need for uh, workers. Um, you know, if you know, if the workers have more time off, if there's the railroads have to give them more flexibility, they're going to have to hire more people or at least retain more people um, to have that flexibility. So that's pro- probably part of the reason why um, some of them are digging in their heels on this uh, you know, sick days off issue. Well, Sean, it sounds then like what, what's going on here is the union wants more members, and they realize if we get more sick days, you said, uh, guys and gals who work on the railroads will say, I want more sick days. That means the, un- the uh, railroad has to hire more workers. That's more unionized members. That puts lots, that puts more money in the pockets of the union, but it doesn't actually do much to help the average worker, does it? Um. No, I mean, uh, aside from the fact that it might prevent a strike, which would be very bad for the workers, um, but uh, in the sort of normal day-to-day things, it's not going to, to do much. Basically, actually, it'll probably increase uh, the, you know, railway costs, probably probably only marginally, but it, it would have that effect. And so there's there's that issue. Um, you know, the big thing here is that the administration wants to wants, desperately wants to prevent a replay of last year's supply chain crisis, an actual full-on strike a breakdown uh, of the rail industry is not something that they want going into this election. Um, they have enough problems dealing with their, their um, you know, record on uh, the economy as it is. This would be a really awkward thing, particularly after, as you said, they made such a point of saying that we'd solve this issue earlier this year. Yeah, and, and, and Joe Biden's going to have to be held to account for that. But uh, long term for the railroads, do you have any idea? Do, they, does, do the railroads have any idea how much they could automate uh, jobs out of existence? Because the railroad workers, I mean, there's actually a term called feather bedding. Uh, and as I understand the purpose of, or the origin of that term, it was when uh, steam engines went from somebody who had to either shovel wood or coal into a boiler to make the engine go down the tracks, and then they went to diesel, and and uh, the oil would just get sprayed into the firebox automatically. And they said, well, what do we do with the, they called him a fireman. And, you know, the person whose job was to sh- either sh- throw the wood in there or at some point throw coal in there. And they said, well, you can't fire him. And so they would they would, you know, basically he would get on the train with no job to do, but still collecting a paycheck. And he'd lay down and take a nap uh, during the and that that's how the term feather bedding came about. This is this is what it sounds like the unions want. Well, you may you may in, you may engineer your way or automate your way in, into needing fewer workers but you're not going to get rid of any of our, our, our union members. 
Well, and that's what unions exist to do, is to protect to protect their, their members and their interests, not necessarily the companies and not the broader, not even the broader economies. I mean, I can't I can't blame them for for wanting to try and uh, you know keep their members' jobs. That's what they're created to do. But yeah, I mean, if anything should be on the leading edge of automation, it should be the railway industry. I mean, you know, we have you know we're talking about driverless cars and um, you know drones and, and aircraft and boats. They're actually further along in automation than the railway is, um, even though railway you know uses dedicated lines and they don't have to share the road with anyone else. So you'd think that they would be you know further along at this point. And you know a lot of the reason is that just you know the the workers have have resisted this and and, and fought back against it. And there are like some legitimate issues I you know with safety and all that type of stuff. But yeah, at the, the bottom line is that they're trying to protect the you know the jobs of their own workers. I, and I get that, Sean. I, I wouldn't want to lose my job either. But on the other hand, when you get to that point where you say, well, we're going to protect jobs even when they've been automated out of existence, um, that's only going to go on for so long. And at some point that has to break. I'm sure there was a point when I always use uh, ships being unloaded, that when you had ships were unloaded by, you know, guys with strong backs and a hand truck. And then they went to cargo nets and then they went to containers where a single longshoreman sitting in a in a crane can unload 27 80,000 pound containers, two and a half million pounds of cargo. He can unload every hour that he's on the job. Now, I'm sure that job probably replaced the jobs of dozens, maybe even hundreds of union members in that job. And why don't the unions just say, look, we want to make sure that the transition to this automation goes well. We let people retire out of their jobs and not replace them. But that would require the unions to take a smaller number of month, you know, every once a month dues payers in their in their uh, in their workforce. Yeah, I mean, you've you've sort of outlined the the sort of existential problem that they face pretty well. Uh, I'll point out something else, which is, you know, when you don't automate, um, you can't simply not automate and and just sort of. Leave it, leave it at that. I mean, part of the reason why we had the supply chain crisis is because our port, our ports aren't as automated as uh, a lot of these sort of shipping companies and ports in other countries are. Yep. And as a consequence, that's part of what created the backup is we couldn't clear the stuff as fast as they could at other ports. Our, there's like some countries in what are you know, colloquially called the third world that are basically have more advanced um, you know, ports than we do. Yeah, and they're able to quickly load containers, not as many people. But again, today's longshoreman who sits in that crane, he's making $185,000 a year. He gets paid very well. And did he replace a whole bunch of workers who are just unloading ships with their strong backs or a hand truck or a forklift? Sure. Uh, but but it, but it made sense to go that way. And inevitably, that's where the technology is going to take you. That's Sean Higgins from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. When we get back, I'll get to your phone calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you and uh, glad to have talked to Mayor Ted Wheeler for the first time in four and a half years. And he's welcome back anytime. And we will invite him back. This segment of the show is brought to you by NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showing, no hassles, and you get to pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. And our Twitter poll today, should we listen to the teachers' unions? In this case, I gave you the example of the Bellevue Education Association. Should we listen to teachers' unions that want school police locked out of the K-12 through schools? I would say no to that. You can answer any way you like, at Lars Larson Show, 
and at LarsLarson.com. Uh, it's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. And if you've wondered, Lars, have you asked for an interview with the uh, mayor of Seattle, Bruce Harrell? Yes, we have. And have we asked for, did we ask for interviews over and over again with Mayor Jenny Durkin before Harrell? Yes, we did. And we didn't get, uh, we didn't get a yes, but we didn't stop asking either. Let's go to Joe, first of all. Joe, welcome to the raise, uh, to the uh, Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Well, uh, Lars, thank you for taking my call. Um, sure. I'm just calling, this is Joe Hall, you know, the, you know, assaulted by Antifa and BLM back in May of 2021. Yep. And I and never got satisfaction me, from that because they ne- the police never found the bad guys who did it, even though they had video and still pictures of them, right? Still pictures and names. And um, listening to, you know, disgusted by listening to Mayor Wheeler state that he's responsible for all the actions that goes on in Portland and all the, the crime. And, you know, he takes that personally responsible for it. But yet, my case is still out there, you know, stating that they're not responsible. The mayor's not responsible. Well, he just admitted he's responsible. And, yeah, and the other, the know, other problem it, I have with him is, Joe, when I said, well, look, you, you, let, you let them go out and block streets. You let them riot. And he said, we never said okay to that. When the mayor went out and marched in the streets with Antifa, he communicated a message. Uh, if somebody is out and they're doing things that end up in, in law-breaking activity and the mayor of a city goes out and marches in the streets with them, and then when the prosecutor decides not to, you know, he even said, well, all those people were held responsible for what they did. No, they weren't. The DA declined to no. prosecute over 1,000 of the cases that involved people who had broken the law during those riots. So when the mayor says they were held responsible, they may have been arrested and cited, but they weren't prosecuted because the DA chose not to do it, and the mayor didn't say boo. And and then the ones that got scraped knees and their feelings hurt were given tens of thousands of dollars in, in, you know, know, money from the the city. And here I lost, in the last year and a half, I lost, you know, um, tens of thousands of dollars in work, um, you know, physical, you know, disability from my PTSD and everything like that. I just do not like going into Portland unless I absolutely have to, and I've got somebody to back me up. But yet somebody like me driving down simply after work gets assaulted, gets, you know, forced out of your vehicle, and you're forced to defend yourself. And his Gun Violence Reduction Act, they, you're going to take guns off the streets and not going to tolerate it, yet those five individuals with guns pointed in my face, locked and loaded, and yep. I'm being threatened, and I was being threatened with possibly, um, you know, a crime because I had to pull my, my handgun out and defend myself? Disgusting, Lars. Absolutely right. Joe Hall, thank you very much. I appreciate the call. Let's go to Jerry. Hey, Jerry, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Hey, Jerry. I think Jerry may have disappeared on us. Jerry, what's on your mind, sir? My Bluetooth isn't working. Sorry about that, Lars. No worries. Um, So Oregon Justice Resource Center um, was in cahoots with Ted Wheeler, Antifa Legal Center. There's a gal that works for them, Beatrix Ling Ling Lee. We talked about her. She was the one who was okay. put on, uh, on, on Mayor Ted Wheeler's uh, team to teach the police, allegedly, about white supremacy. 
and she's identified with Antifa, right? Okay, I didn't catch that part. I came in 10 minutes late, but yeah, it just astonishes me. If people that live in Multnomah County are tired of this crime, look into that. You're not going to get any results until Mike Schmidt and Ted Wheeler and all the other liberals on the city council are completely gone and some common sense is put back into place. He can blow a smoke all day long, Ted Wheeler can. This isn't going to get solved until they get rid of this. No, and I'll tell you what, when when Ted Wheeler began finally sending me emails last week because he was mad that I had said he locked the public out of a city council meeting because they got too loud, um, and he says, well, you can't just stand there at the podium and, and not let anybody else use it, and I thought immediately of the fact that thousands of people literally blocked streets night after night after night, and you say, well, is that against the rules? Yeah, it is. Almost every city in America, and that includes Portland, has has ordinances that say you cannot block city streets. Uh, if you want to block them with a parade or an event, you have to get a permit. These people said, screw the permit. We're going to block your streets. We're going to riot in your streets. And the mayor chose to call that peaceful protest because all people were doing was blocking the streets. So the duplicity is in Ted Wheeler saying why you can't walk into city council chambers in our room and stand at a podium and then refuse to leave because you're not happy with the three minutes we gave you to speak. You can't do that. It's against the rules. And my response to that is there are rules that say that thousands of Antifa cannot go out and block city streets and inconvenience tens or hundreds of thousands of people, and yet you allowed that to happen and you didn't do anything to stop it. You've got the Lars Larson Show. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's great to have you with me on the Radio Northwest Network. On a daily basis, we endeavor to serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk. And I think we do a reasonably good job. I mean, uh, better than government work, if you want to put it that way. If you want to join in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, uh, and by the way, I get all those emails. They don't go to anybody else. And if I answer them, the answer came from me. Our Twitter poll today, should we listen to teachers' unions that say they want school police locked out of K through 12 schools. I use the example of the Bellevue Teachers Union. That's exactly what they did. Passed a resolution, said, we don't want cops on campus, but we want campus to be safe. I don't think the two add up, but then again, that's labor unions for you. Today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, on the phone with me right now is Paul Guppy, the Vice President for Research at the Washington Policy Center. Paul, good to have you back. Good to be on. Thanks for having me. I've had it put to me this way, you know, that for all the hundreds of billions, if not trillions of, dollar, trillions of dollars that are spent around the United States on K-12 public education, that when people look at the Catholic 
schools in America. I'm not Catholic. I'm Protestant. But still, from a distance, I can admire the kind of education they offered up that the latest education results uh, from NAEP, that's the National uh, Assessment of Education Progress, if Catholic schools were their own state, you know, as opposed to just schools scattered around the 50 states, 54 if you're a Joe Biden fan, 58 if you're a Barack Obama fan. Um, But if if they were a single state, they would actually rank as the best schools in any state in America. Is is that roughly accurate? Uh, That is accurate. And what struck us as researchers is not so much the religious aspects of the school, which you pointed out are, are, are not really key to education here, It's that the Catholic school system operates as a control group by which to compare the public school system. And as you're correctly pointing out, national test scores now show that if the Catholic school system were a state on its own, it would rank at the top of all 50 states. And so we looked into the reasons for that. And again, we're prime, and I can elaborate, but we're primarily interested in the Catholic school system as being a large uh, education system that operates independently of the government and has a demographic of students that is similar to what you find in the public schools as well. So you can make some good comparisons. Yeah, because you're not saying, well, all the kids who go to Catholic schools come from affluent families with college-educated moms and dads and all that. An awful lot of kids who go to Catholic schools come from blue-collar families where education is valued, and they say, I don't care how many extra shifts I'm going to have to work, mom or dad does, I'm going to make sure my kid gets a quality education, and they know the danger of sending their kid to a public school. So did you figure out how it is that they're able to do so much better than the conventional government-operated K-12s? Yes, we did. So on the point about demographics, the interesting thing about the Catholic Church is their experience in America is as an immigrant church going back to the 19th centuries, and that's still true today. So Catholic schools are set up to be parish-based, that is, they're located in the community, and they often serve immigrant and low-income families. So the thing about, we we often hear back, like, oh, only the elite creaming the top students go to Catholic (laughs) schools. That's not true. The second thing is the factors that led to their success, and we found that there were a couple. Number one is voluntary uh, parent choice. Parents, families, even the poorest families, choose and opt into the local Catholic school so they're very engaged. And the second factor is focus on academics. So Catholic schools and a lot of other private schools as well are able to keep union politics out. They don't do critical race theory. They don't get involved in controversy in politics. They don't have strikes. (laughs) They opened up much sooner after the COVID lockdown. And you add all those factors together, and what they're really, they have a, a core mission focus on academics in the classroom, and that's what led to their success. They also have, and I don't know if you could put metrics to that, but they also seem to have a focus on kids behave themselves in the schools, which Mm -hmm. means teachers Mm -hmm. don't have to show up in a classroom and worry that they might get stabbed or shot or raped uh, or assaulted, uh, and that when there's a problem, the problem gets dealt with not just by the school administration, but by parents who are going to say, I'm paying good money for this education. You will be cooperative and go along with what the teacher says. Exactly. And I I know that there's a philosophy in Catholic schools, and again, this also applies to a lot of private schools as well, is learning cannot take place without order. So the first thing that has to happen is order in the classroom. Any teacher knows that one or two disruptive students are actually robbing every other student in the classroom of an opportunity to learn. 
So they have that core organizational function of maintaining order. And then the second part is how they do that is going back to my first point about parent involvement in the school, where families chose the school. <laughs> they were not passive like they are in the, pro- in the public system. And in fact, the public system will also often see parents as a problem to be controlled. In the Catholic schools, parents are a partner. They're obviously paying for the education. Often the parents, not exclusively, but they're often also members of the church. So there's kind of a community there. But many non-Catholic families also go to to these schools as well. So the key factor that we looked for was cooperation with what's going on at home. If there's a disciplinary problem in the school, the school ends up contacting uh, the parents or, or guardian at home, and they work together to solve the problem. Well, is there any way to take that success and bring it to the K-12 government-run schools, or do we need to escape from the government control to be able to do that? Uh, well, it's escape from government control only in the sense of putting parents in charge. Right. So public schools are fine, public school funding, uh, the, the the test standards, the academic scores, forming new citizens for the future, participating in democracy. Those are all essential functions of what public schools do. The element that's missing is that engagement or even veto control by the parents, where parents, and I've had kids in public school, I know what it's like to receive a notice that just dictates to you what's going to happen with your kid, what assignment, what teacher he gets, that kind of thing. And believe me, good luck going to the central office and trying to get, you know, trying to get changes or even get them to listen to you. So that's the core factor that we find even in other states with public schools is that when parents have actual engagement, when they can control the money, when they can transfer their child to another school, when they have uh, a tool like an education savings account, for example, Suddenly, the bureaucracy becomes much more attentive to their needs, and public schools become responsive when they know that parents have choices to go someplace else. See, and that's the thing I'd love to see brought back to public schools, competition. Meaning right now, if you're unhappy with your local government-run K-12 school, is like tough luck. That's the school you've got available to you. If you're in a private sector school or can go to that, and you say, if you don't step it up for my child, I'm taking my child and the money that goes with my child to some other kind of school. If the public schools face that, I think they'd have to straighten things up. Paul, thank you very much. That's Paul Guppy from the Washington Policy Center. Coming up. Looks like Joe Biden's green agenda is going to send hundreds of billions directly to China and to China by way of Canada. I'll give you the story and I'll get to your calls in just a moment. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get back to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go first at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you'll find the poll question, brand new one written every single day out of the news of the day. You'll find that at at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and at Lars larson.com on the web now i want to give you a couple of thoughts on this and then i'll jump to calls um joe biden has said that he wants to push a green agenda and of course his so-called inflation reduction act uh, more than 700 billion dollars uh, doesn't have much to do with inflation at all other than promoting inflation and making inflation worse but it does have a lot to do with the green agenda hundreds of billions of dollars of your money borrowed or cash it doesn't matter to joe is going to be spent on the green agenda. And as I pointed out to you before, 
an awful lot of that money is going to go straight to China. In other words, it's going to go straight to the country that has compromised Joe Biden because of the illicit deals that Joe Biden's smartest guy I ever know, son, Hunter, cut with a Chinese, get this, energy company back when Joe was vice president. Tens of millions of dollars flowed to Hunter Biden and his business associates, which included the big guy, Joe Biden, then vice president of the United States. And we said, this is a problem. When you've got a president saying, I'm going to push an agenda, and I'm going to send the better part of a third of a trillion dollars, and we're going to spend it on windmills made in China, uh, solar cells made in China, the wind generating machines made in China, that's a big enough problem to begin with. But the second problem, now that Joe is pushing e-vehicles, electric cars, battery cars, consider this. The Biden administration, according to Daily Caller, is seeking to fund Canadian mining developments. You say, well, they're our neighbors. They're the nice guys to the north, you know, our, our, our neighborhood next door. It will accelerate Joe Biden's plans for a green energy transition. But get this, several of the Canadian mining corporations that Joe Biden wants to send our money to so you have the rare earths and the other materials necessary to make the batteries and the solar panels and all the rest of that. Some of them are partially owned by Chinese corporations. And President Biden has now invoked the Defense Production Act. That's something that came about during the Cold War to increase production of green energy technologies without buying critical minerals like lithium and cobalt from unreliable foreign sources. So he says, well, well, we'll buy them from a reliable neighbor next door, and that's Canada. The problem is the Biden administration says, we know that there's no way in the world that we can expand U.S. mining infrastructure, even though the United States does have areas that could be mined and have been mined in the past for all the rare earths that are used in the manufacture of uh, technology, chips, batteries, and all the rest. So the DOD, get this, the Department of Defense, you thought they were all about winning wars and that sort of thing, has set aside $1 billion to help the U.S. acquire more rare earth minerals, which are needed to produce so-called clean energy, although digging them out of the ground ain't all that clean, from Canadian and other of what the Biden administration calls domestic sources. You might have thought, well, domestic, that means here in America. Yes, North America, but not necessarily the United States of America. Chinese companies have significant ownership in major Canadian mining companies. Some of them have been involved in the 89 public acquisitions and investments in Canadian mining companies over the last 10 years. That comes from Bloomberg News. So the Biden administration knows, and this is from Mark Mills at the Manhattan Institute, the Biden administration knows it would be too difficult to take on the environmental activists to open up or expand U.S. mining. They want more electric vehicles, but they want to hide the supply chain implications by simply saying, well, we'll send the money to Canada. Investors with ties to China hold shares in at least 27 publicly traded Canadian metals and minerals companies. That's, again, according to Bloomberg. In total, Chinese investments and partial ownership in Canadian mining are worth up to $14 billion. So you can buy from China or you can buy from a China-owned mining company in Canada. It's all your choice. To your calls now at 866-HEY-LARS. And about that possible railroad strike that may happen as soon as the 5th of December. Gary, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. Uh, Long-time railroader. I've been with the railroad going on 26 years. And uh, 
this isn't about us trying to cripple the nation. This is about us trying to have more time with our family, trying to get time off for medical. Uh, according to the BNSF, our, our new high-vis policy is with this new contract that they put out, will allow us three days off for medical leave to go, say, we say a dentist or any other doctor. We'll only get three of those days a year, and they have to be on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. Try and schedule those, you know, around a doctor's schedule makes it difficult for us. But not only that, they put us on a point system now, so... In order to take a day off for Thanksgiving or a, a kid's birthday or something, they take so many points away from us, and, and it's it, you're you're working at, at a we we work multiple hours. I'm on call 24 hours a day, so I'm my sure. shift can be 12 hours, and 10 hours later I can be back to work after I get off because of federal uh, hours of service. Right. So, and you're limited just I like truck something? drivers are limited in their hours of service and the total amount they can work in a given week or a given period of time, right? Correct. Correct. But, but when you say but, this isn't about crippling the nation, when the unions say we had a tentative deal, now Joe Biden bragged on that. I, I wasn't sure if it was real or not. It turns out it wasn't. And now at least four of the 12 unions have said, you know what, we may go out on December the 5th. And depending on how long they're out, whether you want to have it look like you're crippling the nation or not, you know what it's going to do to the supply chain, right? Oh, I do. I do. But I also know, and I was told by the president of our union, that the Democrats took him into the office, uh, Joe Biden's people, and told him there's no way you're going to strike. For one, we've already got a letter that's going to stop us from striking. And two, uh, by by doing that, it took away all of our bargaining power away from the union trying to get a better deal and the, or not the union, but against the company. And the company has just walked away from the table and said, we don't have to deal no more. We're done. How much does a typical union worker, a railroad worker union, uh, get off in, in time off, you know, vacation and other time during the year? Uh, well, I've been there 26 years. It's all based on how many years you've been there. Yep, like so, most places. Uh, but first, I think the first through five years, they've get, they get two weeks of vacation. Yep. And then as you go up five years, you get another week and another week. Uh, granted, I'm at so You're up to about five or six weeks, aren't you? I'm at five weeks. I don't go any higher than five weeks. Okay. And, and then I get the 11 deal. personal leave days. I get 11 personal leave days to take the place of holidays because on most holidays they do not allow you to take it off. Right. So you've got a total of more than seven weeks right now off. Now, I realize you've been there 26 years. How many sick days would you want on top of those seven weeks that would make the union happy? Sick days? Yeah. Uh, you know, like my wife, my wife works for a, a you're going to have to get to it quick, or we're going to hit the break. How many sick days? My wife, my wife works for a, a hospital, so she acquires PTO days or hours by however many. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls, and I'll get back to your calls in just a moment. But I want to welcome back to the program Marion Tupi, who's a senior fellow at the Cato, Cato Institute. I almost said Cater Institute. Uh, that'd be the southern version of the Cato Institute. And co-author of the new book, Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an in- infinitely bountiful planet. That's, it's quite a mouthful, but I, I love the title of the book, Marion. Oh, thank you very much, and uh, it's, it's, it's a delight to be on your show. Thank you very much for coming back, because it's been too long. You know, the other night I saw a soundbite from Tom Hanks, in which he was sort of outlining the Malthusian theory. Now, this was a few years ago, and the, uh, the hosts on NBC were just patting him on the back, saying, oh, you've outlined Malthus perfectly. Uh, Thomas Malthus suggested we will never be able to make food production on this planet keep up with population growth. Uh, is Thomas Malthus pretty well either rolling in his grave or completely debunked at this point? He's dead wrong, uh, aside from being dead, obviously, and uh, completely debunked by the history. So his famous work, uh, The Essay on Population, came out in 1798. There was one billion people in the world. Today there's eight billion of us, and the world has never been richer. I don't mean richer in a sense that over the last 18 months or so, in the United States, we've had a problem whereby prices are increasing uh, at a faster pace than wages. By richer, I mean that 200 years ago, that 1 billion people lived in absolute poverty. Uh, 90 to 95% of people anywhere in the world lived on less than $2 a day. Uh, today, uh, average income per person per day is about $40. So the world is much richer. Famines have basically disappeared from the world outside of war zones which means that people are no longer dying of hunger. They may be dying of socialism or they may be dying of war, but not of hunger necessarily. Um, we are living longer. Uh, instead of, instead of uh, living to about 25 to 30 years, we, the, the, the global um, average is about 72 years. In the United States, 78 years. So it's been completely debunked. Uh, the, the, the world is a much better place. And the argument that we are making super abundant is that it is in part due to population growth because People don't come into the world. Children don't come, come into the world just with an empty stomach. They also come into the world with a pair of hands and, more importantly, a brain, a brain capable of uh, uh, developing new drugs, new ways of uh, better and more efficient agriculture, uh, and so on and so forth. So human beings are the reason why we are so rich. I'm talking to Marion Tupi, and this is why I'm such a fan of Marion, and, of course, the co-author, uh, Gail Pooley, who wrote Superabundance. There's another term, and I, it's kind of a funny term, so we should explain it, but uh, potable water on planet Earth. I mean, if you go back and look at, at where we sat 30 or 40 years ago, how many people on planet Earth had access to water you could safely drink, and how many people have access today? The number has changed very much in favor of human beings who like to drink water, hasn't it? Well, absolutely. Uh, Part of the reason why people were not terribly productive in the past is because everybody was constantly drunk. Let me explain what I mean. People have realized thousands of years ago that drinking alcohol uh, would satiate your thirst uh, without making you sick because alcohol in water, you know, be it in beer or alcohol in spirits, disinfected the water. And so people used to drink beer and cider uh, all the time, from breakfast till, 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 till dinner, till, till, till nighttime. 
And um, that was part of the reason why people were so little productive is because we were almost all, all the time drunk. And now with new technology, we are able to produce safe drinking water for everyone. Now, of course, the moment that we started producing more safe water for everyone, people started talking about, you know, the end of fresh water. Are we now using too much fresh water? <laughs> what these people don't realize, of course, is that the world is 75% of Earth is covered by water. It's just the wrong kind of water. And the, re- and, and the way you get away from salt water and turn it into fresh water is through desalination plants. So once again, here you have an example of the human mind at work. By running desalination plants, we can basically produce infinite amount of fresh water and never run out of it. Well, and isn't it also true that the biggest desalination factory in the in the world literally is the world? I mean, it's planet Earth, the sun, and evaporation. And that if we actually manage the water, the 2% of that 75 that's actually fresh at any given time, we'd have enough water if we just simply shepherded it and conserved it the right way. Yes, uh, but also remember that the reason why we, we think that we are running out of fresh water is because water is so cheap, uh, relatively speaking, that we have no incentive to go and look for more fresh water deposits. If water was more expensive, we would have more of a, more of a reason uh, to look for fresh water deposits without desalination. This is what always happens when a commodity, be it water or zinc or copper or anything else, uh, spikes in price. Uh, people, once again, brainy people, start looking for new ways of conserving uh, those commodities or alternatively looking for new deposits or substitutes. We no longer kill whales in order to produce lighting uh, to turn them into candles. What we do now is we use fracking to produce natural gas, which we turn to electricity and then lighting our apartments. And we do it very, very cheaply. And, and we could do the same. And as, as you say, when it comes to water, because it is so, so cheap, Marion, I like to remind people in most of the Western world, we flush our toilets with drinking quality water, don't we? Oh, yes. And, and there are so many efficiencies that we can gain. You know, in Israel, they recycle 98% of their water. And because of desalination plants, which many of them are run by solar power, they are able to produce so much water. This is a country without any natural water reserves to speak of. Yep. The Israelis are able to produce so much water that they are exporting fresh water to the surrounding Arab states, which, by the way, hate them. And also, uh, Israel is now one of the biggest agricultural exporters in the world, uh, partly because of these desalination plants, but also because Israelis have pioneered smart agriculture. Uh, smart agriculture basically means that you equip every uh, plant uh, that you are growing with a microchip that tells you exactly how many drops of water it needs and when. And that way you are not wasting any water. You are giving the plant exactly the amount of water it needs. I'm talking to Marion Tupi, who is one of the two authors of a brand new book called Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. One of the indictments that you answer is the statement in this publicized report that said, the world's growing population is consuming planet Earth's natural resources at such a rate, the world will need 1.6 planets to be able to satisfy the demand for natural resources, and that could rise to two planets by 2030. That must seem almost silly to you. 
Well, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, you see, the problem is that people focus on the finite number of atoms in the world. Uh, it is true that there is a finite number of zinc atoms or uranium atoms or copper atoms. But the amount of value that we can get from those atoms is basically infinite. Think about a grain of sand. It's been lying around on, um, on, on, our, on our beaches for billions of years. And then about 5,000 years ago, people realized that if they heat sand to 3,090 degree Fahrenheit, they can produce uh, glass from it. And they started using it for glass beads, for decoration. Later, they started using glass for cups. Uh, later for window panes, and now we are using glass in order to create fiber optic cables, which carry information worth trillions of dollars at close to the speed of sound from one corner of the world to the next. So you can or, see or close, how close from... to the speed of light, maybe. That's Marion Tupi. The book that he co-authored is called Superabundance. Marion, thank you so much. We'll look forward to the next time. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. And this is the Radio Northwest Network, serving the states of Idaho, Washington, and Oregon with honestly provocative talk every day. And your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go first at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And this segment brought to you by Valhalla Tea, a perfect gift for the holidays, helping veterans with every bag sold at ValhallaTea.com. Our Twitter poll today, should we listen to teachers you? In this case, I cited the example of the Bellevue Education Association, which is another name for a teacher's union in a very affluent suburb of Seattle. They say they want school police locked out of the K-12 schools, but they also want the schools to be safe. Now, if somebody can figure that out, I'd be glad to take the naysayer call. Let's see. Let's lock all the cops out of the schools. Let's not let the police arrest any of the little darlings that commit crimes on school property. And then we'd like safety, too. Can you figure out how to fit all three of those in the same bucket? Today's Twitter poll, at Lars Larson Show, and brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let's go to Mark. Hey, Mark, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Oh, thank you, Lars. Hey, Lars, I just want to uh, plug a, a little bit of... Um... I give a little bit of kudos to the uh, private school system. Um, I was a graduate from, from public schools, and um, um, I didn't have great academic uh, performances and, and success there. But I graduated, and I went on to the university, and, and I went through all that. But my kids, two of them, I have five kids, and two of them, actually three of them, have gone to um, to uh, private high schools. Um, they went to... Uh, uh, what's known as, as Marist uh, High School here in Eugene. Yeah. And um, they both um, um, were just bored with the public school's experiences that they had up through or up to high school. And then after that, I don't know, it's just something about the curriculum that's offered at Marist, for instance. And I think that they've just, they just um, have found a, a formula that works there. Um and uh, it's non-union. I love that. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm no supporter of union, even though I have to work for a place that, that has a union in it. But I don't support union any more than I have to. But um, my, my 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 two daughters that are graduated from Juilliard. I mean, from uh, Marist. One of them went to Juilliard. 
She just recently wow. graduated from there. She's That's on tour stuff. right now in Europe. She, she's 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 on tour right now in Europe, and she's been there for a couple of years. Um, the other one is at Fordham, which is right across the street from Juilliard in um, in New York. It's it's almost ironic, but uh, <laughs> um, and let's uh, hope they don't pick up a lot of uh, a lot of uh, liberal nonsense at those schools. Oh, they have. I, it's, it's a they have. Battle. <laughs> Yes, unfortunately, my it's to, to my to my chagrin. But one thing we didn't have a television in our house growing up. We 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 had no television, um, and uh, um, I think that was one of the best um, um, yeah. accidental decisions we made as parents, me and my wife. And um, and we taught our kids to to read when they were three years old. Kids don't have to wait till they're six or seven years old to start reading. Nope, they, they don't. Be taught that Plain, plain phonics when they're three or four years old. Well, so Mark, what do you what do you think about this? Yes. What do you think would happen if they yes. put it on the ballot? Which I think is the only way you're going to get it in Oregon or in Washington. Idaho might be a little better about it. Take the same plan that Arizona has, which they just signed into law this year, and they say if you're a parent and you want to take your child to a school other than the conventional failing government schools. You may do Absolutely. that, and you may take with you, in yeah. the case of Arizona, about $7,000. In Oregon and Washington, the number would be bigger because Oregon and Washington, believe it or not, spend upwards of $18,000 per student per That's year. That's right. That's right. Uh-huh. Now, if, right. if you took two-thirds of that amount, if you took $12,000 and said to parents, hey, take your kid anywhere, some parents would say, well, heck, there's a... There's a Christian school that I can take my kids to that doesn't even cost that much. Or I could put them in a top-flight private school, and I might have to come up with two or $3,000 a year. And you ask yeah, parents, yeah. would it be worth a couple of hundred dollars a month, which over the course of a year okay. would be two or $3,000, uh, to get your kid in a top-flight school? And that's the deal we made with Maris when we went there. And they, our, I don't have a great-paying job, but... Uh, we were able to come up with a minimal amount, and uh, and Maris came up with the rest of it. It was great. So they negotiated a nice scholarship for them in high school. So we didn't have to pay the full, what is it, fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars Now is a full MSRP, if you will, at Maris, but, but they gave it to us for a fraction of that. So they made it fit our budget, our family, our needs, because of their, uh, their um, 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 funding the, and scholarships that they provide. It was great. And, oh, I'll, I'll mention, too, um, the reason, I think part of the reason that my two uh, daughters who uh, went to New York got admitted was because those schools knew on their admissions boards that they had gotten a better quality education than um, than what they would have gotten if they'd have gone to um, a public school. I think that. Yep. I can't prove that. I can't quantify that. But I think that's true. I, I think that's um, true. And the thing is, Mark, the, as soon as... If you were to put that on the ballot, the voters approved it. You said, okay, some of the money can leave yep. the public schools. The standard response from the unions will be, you're going to kill the public schools. And you say, no, we're going to make them compete. No. If the, and if they have, they have more money to spend and they can compete, if they're not capable of competing, they deserve to go out of business. If they are capable of stepping up their game and delivering for kids and for parents and for taxpayers, then they deserve to continue to exist. Otherwise, no way. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network.